Uh, with that, now let's now go to our passage reading. We'll be from 1 John chapter 3. So please turn to your Bibles. I'll be reading from the ESV. Pastor Bill will be preaching uh, our sermon entitled The New Humanity. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be... Everyone who hates... But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Morning. If we've not had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And before we get started today, I'd like to draw your attention to a stack of books that we have on the welcome table. This is called Gentle and Lowly. It was a little bit of a surprise uh, this last year. came out and really took uh, the, the market by storm. I had already picked up a copy of this, and then the publisher had reached out to made it available to churches uh, for free. Um, I would strongly, strongly urge you to not get one, but several of these. We really do have a lot. Um, able, able to talk about the heart of Christ for individuals in such a way that it actually stirs something up inside of you. I was reading through this in the winter. Uh, and, and makes you desire Jesus more. So whether you already have a great relationship with Jesus or you're still struggling to even figure out, does, does God like me? This book will be one of those few that goes across the the continuum and is very helpful. Let me urge you, please get one of these. We announced this yesterday at Prep and Prayer Day, but I want to make sure that all of us know about it. Also, video from Prep and Prayer Day, uh, that was our helping our, our ministry leaders develop from yesterday. The video is now up, and I would strongly urge you, if you weren't able to be with us yesterday, go online at the regular place, our YouTube channel, and take a look at that. If you have trouble finding that, email us at www.renewalmainline.org. We'd be happy to direct that to you. I mentioned last...
spiritual connection with him, but we saw that as he gives you a spiritual connection with him, he also connects you to the rest of the family. And so Jesus is in the process of building a new community, a community of people who have a different kind of life. That means church is what? It, it's not a grouping of just, you know, regular, ordinary human beings who kind of likes the same things and share the same things. Instead, we are a new kind of people group altogether. Scripture calls us the new humanity. And so part of what Jesus is doing in the church is building something that had not previously been on the earth. It's a new humanity, simultaneously reconciled to God and then reconciled to each other. That's who we are. That's what we looked at last week. This week, we want to take a little bit of a look at what is it that we do? If this is the new humanity, what's the culture, what's the lifestyle of this new humanity? We have this new nature, not just as individuals, but we have this new nature as a group, which means then that we're not going to function as other groups ordinarily would. We have our own unique culture among us because what used to come naturally to us no longer does. When Jesus joins us to himself, we now have something that replaces that, a new way of engaging. G.K. Chesterton has a helpful way of talking about this, of what it's like for us to be this new humanity, living out a new culture, and yet still in an old world. He said, quote, The church always seems to be behind the times when it's really beyond the times. Really helpful way to put that. Say it again, the church always seems to be behind the times when it's really beyond the times. What's he mean there? He means that you and I, as part of the kingdom of God, have a different outlook on the world, a different perspective. It's one that is different from the way the rest of the world looks at life. We're not viewing life, our perspective of life is not from within the humanity that we were born into, it's from within this new humanity that we are reborn into. And so from the outside, if you look at the church from the outside, it looks like we're behind the times. That's not really accurate, though. It's not like we're behind and we're desperately trying to catch up and we really just want to be relevant to what everyone else is doing. It's that we're beyond. We come at life from a different perspective. That different approach to life gives us a different culture that we build within the church, different lifestyle, different way of relating to each other. That's our focus today. We want to zero in on that lifestyle, on how we engage each other. I want to do so from three different directions. First, we're going to consider what that lifestyle is not. Secondly, what it is. And then thirdly, what resources do we have that give us hope for actually living out that lifestyle. So what it's not, what it is, and what resources do we have? First, what it's not. John uses very simple Greek words. I love John. He writes some of the easiest Greek in the New Testament, uses very simple words, but he repeats them, and he repeats them in various combinations. And so after a while, you start to get a little... You know, this is getting really complex. I'm hearing the same words, but they're not being used in the same kind of ways. Let me see if I can give us the big picture of what he's done in that passage that Luke read. 
the focus is in verse 14, that we have passed out of death into life. And here you have to envision two very distinct realms. Other writers will call them kingdoms, but two realms, one where everything is related to death, and it's best summed up by the word death, and the other realm is where everything is related to life and best summed up by the word life. Two realms, life and death, that have absolutely nothing to do with each other, and yet they exist simultaneously in the same physical space. They overlap. And before Jesus comes, all you have is the realm of death. The whole world is living in the realm of death. Jesus comes, enters, brings his kingdom. Now the realm of life has a foothold here on this earth. Two realms, two different cultures, two different lifestyles. And John wants to give you an illustration of what it's like to live in the realm of death. And so he references Cain. Now who's Cain? Cain is the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. He makes his appearance in history back in Genesis chapter 4, so we're talking very early on in the history of the human race. Cain had a brother, Abel. We don't know much about these two brothers, but we know at one point in time they offered two different offerings to God. And we know that God approved of Abel's offering, but not of Cain's. You think, well, why is that? The author of Hebrews teases this out a little bit. He tells us that the difference is that Abel offered his offering by faith. What's that mean? It means that he trusted God to do for him what he could not do for himself. He trusted that his status with God, his relationship with God, did not depend on that thing that he was offering wasn't trying to earn his way to God with his offering, but his offering is expressing his confidence that God himself will make a way for him to have a friendship with God. The implication then in Hebrews is that Cain did not offer his by faith. Instead, he saw it as a way of earning God's favor, a way of putting God in his debt, a way of saying, I'm giving you this, and so now you owe me. You got the best I have to give, and so now I'm looking for the best that you have to give. You owe me a place with you because I bought it with what I brought. We're told that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. You can't buy friendship with God. But God did tell Cain that he could be accepted if he wanted to be. He didn't have to go away mad. He could be friends with God, but he'd have to trust God to make that friendship possible. We learn in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain wanted nothing to do with that arrangement, and he hated his brother. His brother had something he didn't have. Hated him so much that he killed him. And John reaches back out into antiquity, grabs that story, brings it into the present, so that we can then understand that as we live in the realm of life, we should not be like Cain who murdered his brother. And you read that real quick and you say, wait, <laughs> I, I, I'm not interested in murdering anyone. I, I've never thought about murdering anybody. I'm not a murderer. I don't even know any murderers. Why is he talking here about murder? It's because there's something that murder expresses in an ultimate way that all of us can relate to. It expresses 
the desire to not have to deal with anybody ever again or a certain person ever again. Maybe you've had that desire before that you wouldn't have to deal with someone anymore. You know, there's, there's that person at work that you have who just rubs you the wrong way. You can't stand it and you can't stand what you need to do so that you don't have to deal with them. It's what a friend of mine calls bloodless murder. He calls those desires murderous because they have the same effect as murder, removing someone from ever having meaningful interactions with you again. It's the same desire that drives physical murder. In bloodless murder, you might not physically eliminate the person, but the effect is the same. They're still removed from your presence. This is the same thing that Jesus gets at in Matthew chapter 5. He says there in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And in that moment, Jesus just equated anger and murder with each other. He said they get exactly the same penalty, judgment. And they can only get the same penalty if what? If they express the same kind of thing. If they're expressions of the same thing. Different expressions, but two different things that express the same intention, the same longing. He continues, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He's just tied together a bunch of different things, hasn't he? He's tied together murder and anger, insults and put down. And he said they all deserve equal treatment, similar judgment. And the understand there is they all deserve similar judgment because they are all various expressions of the same thing, which is what? It's a desire to remove someone from your presence. Now, for some people, you literally have to physically kill them in order to accomplish that. For other people, you don't have to be as extreme. You can just insult them, and that'll be enough. Because once you insult them, they'll leave you alone afterward. They'll go away, never have anything to do with you. And so Jesus lays out a continuum of activities that are all connected because they are different expressions of the same underlying murderous impulse. John, when he writes his letter, makes the same point. Verse 15, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. There's something here that ties hating and murder together. There's a commonality between the two just like Jesus said there was. But here in John, he's saying something a little different than what Jesus did, because if you look again, he's not equating two verbs. He's not equating anger and insults or anger and put-downs or murder. Instead, he's putting together a noun and a verb. He's putting together an identity and an activity. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Murder is the noun. It's a statement of being. It's a person's identity. It's what's most ultimately true of that person. Hate here is a verb. 
It's what the person does. It's how they express their identity as a murderous person. All right, let's bring all this together. When you live in the realm of death, you have an identity, an identity that is best described as a murderer, and you live as a murderer hating others, wishing that there was some way to not have to deal with people who irritate you. And that's why John says, verse 12, that Cain was of the evil one, that Cain was expressing the same desire as the evil one, the desire to remove and eradicate the image of God wherever he finds it, the desire to get rid of all human beings, to murder all of those who are made in the image of God. That's what characterizes the evil one. And that's why the realm that he rules over is characterized as the realm of death. Now, just as an aside, same kind of stuff we've been seeing in the book of Mark, isn't it? We recognize that against, that, that all of Jesus' miracles that he does in the book of Mark are set against the backdrop of death. That this world is trying to eliminate and destroy the image of God. And Jesus' miracles do what? They stand out in sharp contrast because they're bringing life into this world that is set on trying to ruin and destroy human beings. Murder is the strongest expression of that impulse to get rid of human beings. But it's an impulse that every single one of us can understand because every single one of us has expressed it, even Christians. I think of the Christian mother. She would say to her kids when they were disobeying, when they were frustrating her, you don't love us, you should just get out. Now, in that moment, did she think of herself as a murderer? You realize, of course not. But her words could not have been clearer. You should not be here. You should not exist in the same space where I exist. Your presence should be somewhere else, not here. Or I think of the many Christians who give someone the silent treatment. You know that's really cruel, right? to refuse to respond to someone else, to treat them as if they don't exist even when they're standing there right next to you, trying to get your attention. It's wrong to communicate to someone that you, they are only allowed in your presence when they meet your standard of behavior. And if they don't, then you will cut them off. It's wrong. But again, think, in that moment, does anyone think to themselves, I'm murdering my spouse, my child, my parent, my friend. No, it never enters their mind. But what else do you call it when you go out of your way to communicate to someone they don't exist as far as you're concerned? It's bloodless murder. Or think again about how we t all take the amazing gift of language that we have been given and that we use it to drive someone else away. Think about the times when we've threatened someone, when we've been cruel, when we've been condescending, calculating how to make them hurt so badly that we end up having the last word, which means what? They turn and they walk away. What is that? We found a new way to remove them from our presence, to make sure that they don't come back for a good long while. No one wants to see this about themselves. No one wants to believe it. 
But in that moment, we are haters, murderers, who have given ourselves to eliminating someone else, if just for a small moment. That's what it's like to live in the realm of death. It's a lifestyle of murder, lifestyle of hatred, a lifestyle that we should want nothing to do with now that we've been brought into the realm of life. That's point one, what the lifestyle of the new humanity is not. Point two, what it is. It's summed up in one word, love. Verse 11, we should love one another. Love is the indicator, verse 14, of how we know that we've passed out of death into life. It's because we love the brothers, because we love the rest of the new humanity. Now, for the rest of the time here, you you need to realize he's talking about us inside the church, inside the new humanity. There are plenty of places in scripture that talk about how we love people outside, but John's concern is what does it look like inside new humanity? And so all of the references today are a little bit more in-house. Love is how we know that we've passed from death to life. Be very careful here. Love is not the way that you pass from death to life. You don't love other people, and because you love other people well enough, that now means you're good enough to go from death to life. It's not what he's saying. But love is how you know that you've already made that journey. Because when you live in the realm of life, love is what starts to come out of you. Because you've been given a new identity. It's not how you make that crossing, but after that crossing, what do you see? You see love now starting to bubble up where it didn't used to be. And the reason that we love each other, including those who irritate us, let's be frank together, the reason that we now love each other is simply because Jesus has made us and others, even the ones that irritate us, part of the same community. There is no other qualification. That's it. If Jesus brings you from death to life and he brings me from death to life, what does that mean? From last week, it means that we're family. We're not family because we wanted to be family. We're not family because we share a ton of things in common. We're simply family because that's what Jesus did. And because that's what Jesus did, we now extend ourselves to each other in the same way that he's extended himself to us. We're going to look five different pieces here that go into love. That's actually the first one that you are not being told you have to figure out how to love when you have not had that experience. Instead, you know that you already have had that experience because Jesus already loved you. He brought you from death into life. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for each other. We have an idea of what love feels like of what love looks like. We've had that personal experience already. Jesus is our example there. This is what love looks like. But you have to realize he's much more than an example. He's also our experience. Jesus did not love in general. Jesus did not love humanity in general. Jesus did not love faceless, nameless people. He loved specifically the people that he brought into the new family. And so when you are looking at somebody and you're thinking, I don't like them, (laughs) I don't want to love them, what do you need? You need to go back to the one who's already loved you and say, I need more love because I don't have what it takes in me 
to actually care about someone else, but I need you to re-love me. I need to re-experience this love so that I actually want to give it to someone else. And you seek him until love is rekindled in your heart. We're not talking about some kind of step one, step two, step three. We're talking about a real connection with a real person that really changes us on the inside so that we actually live in such a way that wants to care for each other. That's actually points one and two of love. First, love is something that we have already experienced from Christ. And secondly, it moves us to want to love others. Thirdly, love also means now that we have something to give. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's good, goods, and I'll, I'll stop there, if anyone has the world's goods, so you realize a precondition for loving, for giving, is having something to give, if anyone has the world's goods. Now, what are the world's goods? And the easy thing that most of us think about is what? It, it's money, property, those kind of real hard, tangible things. But if you stop there, you're really limiting the resources that you already have. You're limiting the things that you could be using to bless and care for other people. Like time, for instance. Realize that time is something that is part of this physical world. It's part of the universe that God created. It's one of those world's goods in that sense. Using your time is a very important way of how you go about loving other people within the community. You give them your time. When I first started working from home, our kids were still in school, and so they would come home in the middle of the day when I was there, and when they did that, I made myself stop what I was doing. And I wanted to do it in a very physical kind of way, so if I was writing with a pen, I put my pen down. If I was in front of a computer, I turned away from the computer. I looked directly at them because I wanted them to know I'm not dividing my time between you and something else. I'm giving you the best that I have. I'm giving you my time. It's a very important way that we communicate to someone that we love them. We share our time with them. Or, here's another intangible, we share our expertise. Each one of us has learned things over the course of our lives that other people within the community have not yet learned. We have learned things in our professional fields that would benefit others. And one of the ways that we love people within the church is that we share those things with each other, our expertise. We're not greedy with it. We're not stingy. We're not looking to profit off of what we've learned. But we realize that part of God's plan in us developing our specializations, that's why you go to college, that's part of why we develop specializations. It's for our benefit, so that we can provide for ourselves and our families, but it's more than that. It's so that we can offer that back to the rest of his people. Time, expertise, intangibles. Here's another intangible. How about opportunities? There are times when you can open a door for someone else. That's part of love. It's very likely that someone did that for you. They opened a door for you that you could walk through. And part of love is regularly asking yourself, where are the doors that I can open for someone else so that they can actually experience even more of life? Or you can think about friendship. It's another intangible. It's another thing that is part of this physical world. It's a resource that some of us have in abundance that others of us don't have as much. 
And so we want to make sure that we're using friendship, the offer of our presence to care well for others. Here's one of those places where you say, might say to yourself, I, I, you know, I, I have none of the world's goods, but you have yourself. And if you have yourself, you have something that you can offer to other people. You can bring them into an experience of friendship where they're valued, where they're loved. So love then means first that we are loved by Jesus. That love inside of us moves us to love others. It means that we have something to give to someone else and that then involves that we see what other people need. Verse 17 again, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. We'll stop there. If you're going to love well, you have to have a sense of what someone else needs. Now I can imagine somebody saying, you know, Bill, um, I live in the suburbs. Everybody around me has everything that they need. There isn't anything that I could give. They've already got it. If that's what you're thinking, let me be really direct. If you can't see needs, it's because you're not looking for them. Where are the Philly suburbs located? They're located in the realm of death. That means there's tons of needs here. If we're not seeing them, it's because our eyes are not open. What is the need? It's not always physical. Sometimes it is. Let me be very open here. There are people in this renewal community who cannot afford to live at everybody else's level. They can't go to the places where you go. Can't relate to the things that you do or to where you send your kids. Part of love may mean helping them experience what the Lord has blessed you with, blessed you to be able to experience. That is a very important part of what we have to give to each other. But don't stop there. Look beyond the physical, and you'll see even more needs in this community. There are people among us at Renewal who are lonely. Huge issue for Renewal members who are not part of a family. There are plenty of people in families who are also lonely. But I've heard and I've been told that the loneliest time of the week for some people, some of our members for whom Christ has died, the loneliest time of the week is right after the benediction. Everybody who has a family jumps up to do what? They go off to get their kids. Families get together with other families and they leave people feeling left out. Now, nobody intends to do that. I understand that. And if someone comes up to us, we are very, very willing as a community to make room for them in our group. In that sense, renewal is very, very welcoming. That's to our credit. But we do tend to hold back a little bit and we make other people initiate with us. Part of seeing people in need is seeing others who are by themselves and not making them initiate, but going to them and engaging them and bringing them into an experience of community. Or think about people who are harried. Having one child is no joke. I, I, I can testify. Having several children, definitely overwhelming. Probably actually many times where having one child's been overwhelming. Sally and I lived, uh, have, have never lived close to our extended families. So we never had anybody who could, from the extended family, help us out with our kids. We have, however, been so blessed by our churches. 
because we've had other people from the family of God come and help us to raise our kids. People who have connected with our kids who formed relationships with them that had absolutely nothing to do with us. You know that that's what you need, right, for your kids. People who have volunteered to come over and babysit so we just go out by ourselves for a couple hours. It's a very real need in a church like ours full of young families. Or you can think about other things like helping someone navigate. What does it mean to live out their faith at work? If you've been in your job for a couple years and you've learned a little bit how to do that, there are people who would love to hear what that's like from you. Or some of us need to learn to manage our finances better. Some of us need to learn how to raise our children like God would rather than taking our models from the larger world. The list can go on and on and on of all the needs that are here in the suburbs that are reflected among us. If you don't see your brothers and sisters in need, respectfully and and gently, you're just not looking because the needs are here among us. That's part of why God puts us together. It's to meet each other's needs in this realm of life. So you need to experience Christ's love. You need to want to give that experience to others. You need to have something to give. You need to see others in need. And fifth, you need to be willing to sacrifice what you yourself could enjoy. And the reason you sacrifice is so that someone else can have what they need. Going back to verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What's the measure of how much love is willing to give? It's to the extent of laying down our lives. Which means what? It means that when we give to someone else, it's not always going to cost us as much as it cost Christ. It can't. But it will cost something if that's real love. Now, there's no hard and fast rule here. If we tried to lay out, here's how you go about uh, assessing how much it should cost you, what is that? That's the Pharisee experiment. How much do I have to give so that once I give, I'm all done? It's the attempt to keep love within containable boundaries. The principle here is that if you're really loving, then you're most likely giving something to someone in a way that costs you. Let me give a couple questions here that that, that maybe will tease some of this out. Who have you had in your home this last month because they needed to be? Not because you were condescending to some poor person, but because you genuinely wanted them with you because you knew what? It would be better for them, and so you made a space in your home to have them over just because that was really what they needed. Who have you had in your house in the last month from sacrificial love? Or in the last month, who have you reached out to for their benefit? Not for yours, not because you hope to get something from them, not because you just enjoyed hanging out with them, but because you knew that they needed someone to be interested in them. Who have you done that with in the last month? Or in this last month, who did you lose sleep over? Either because you were calling with them, you met with them, You prayed for them. You were thinking about how to care about them. Who did you lose sleep over simply because they're part of your family, this family that Jesus has brought you into? Who did you put into your calendar for their benefit? Who was allowed to interrupt you at work? Who did you open your bank account to? 
Who'd you spend time thinking about and thinking about what is it that they might actually like? Who did you offer your expertise to simply because Jesus put both of you into the same family? Who did you sacrifice for? Not out of condescension, not because you wanted to feel good about yourself, pat yourself on the back, but simply for their sake. How do you know if it was simply for their sake? It doesn't occur to you to count that cost. It doesn't occur to you to grumble about it. You simply see the need and you say, man, I, I have the ability to meet that need and I want to do that. That's what real love is. It's not a vague, warm feeling. It's not a sense of camaraderie. It is those things, of course. But real love, the kind that characterizes this realm of life, is active. It's something that having experience from Christ moves you to want to do the same for others. And so you're constantly looking around, intentionally, trying to see who in God's family needs what you have to give, and then you are moving to give sacrificially, just like you've been given to. Anything less than that is what? It's hate. That's the contrast that John draws here. That's the hard conclusion of verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You realize it can't, because that's the kind of life that God brings you into. He brings you into that life out of murder, out of hate, out of closing your heart off against other people. Those things are all the lifestyle of death, and he's brought you out of that first by letting you experience the goodness of love and then letting you experience the goodness of being able to love, of giving that away. So point one, what the new humanity's lifestyle is not. Point two, what it is. Point three, how on earth do you live this out? When you see what real love is, your heart does one of two things. Either, verse 20, it condemns you for not being anywhere near as good at loving as you thought you were. Or verse 21, it gives you confidence before God because you see that actually there are elements here of real love that are in me, and I'm living in a way that is congruent with the realm of life. When that happens, you have confidence that you will receive from him what you ask for from him. What is it? Because you do what pleases him. What is it that pleases him? Verse 23, two things that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, his Son, Jesus Christ, that we believe in the name, that we are trusting him to make a friendship with us, and that we love one another. When those things are what drive your prayers, Lord, I want to have more faith in you, more connection with you, and Lord, I want more things, more resources so that I can give them away, you know he'll answer those prayers. But what happens when your heart condemns you? When it starts that inner kind of conversation about all of the ways that you've not been doing all of these things? What do you do when you see how little you actually experience Jesus' love in your own life? How little you want to love others? How unaware you are of other people's needs? How much you don't really want to sacrifice for anyone? What do you do when you know inside you're not living out this lifestyle of love. You basically, at that point, have two choices, right? You can either try to ignore all this, to argue against it. You could tell yourself, 
I've been trying. I, I, I just don't have enough time. Um, here's all the good things I've been doing so far. You could try all of that. What is that? That's the way of Cain again. Let me prove that I'm actually good enough for God. That's the way that's doomed. If you want verse 19 to reassure your heart before God, then verse 20, you have to re-experience your connection with God. You have to experience that God is greater than your heart and he knows everything. What's that mean that God is greater than your heart and he knows everything? It means you stop trying to make yourself feel better. You go back to what is objectively true and you talk with God about how he knows the ugliness of who you are of how easily you close your heart to others. He knows that better than you do. He's greater than your heart. He has seen your failure to love more clearly than you have. He's been far more offended than you ever have been by it, more upset than you can begin to imagine. He knows everything, and he wants you anyway. And even now, when you're struggling to love someone else, when you don't want to, what is his response to you? He still loves you. Doesn't stop. He actually moves toward you. That's why Jesus came. To silence the condemnation that we feel inside. To remove the guilt. Not by propping up your self-defense or by pretending that your hatred and murder don't matter. But by paying for how you have brought hatred and a closed heart into his world. He paid for all of that. Rescued you from the realm of death by dying for you. He paid the death that you owed for bringing murder and hate and a closed heart into his universe. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. That's it, because he loves you. And if he did all of that because he loves you, why do you think he's going to quit now? When you find yourself shutting down, not interested in connecting with somebody else, not wanting to live in this realm of life, go back to him. Talk to him. Ask him to love you. Ask him to let you experience that love, to re-experience it. And then turn to the people that you're struggling to love after you've experienced that from him and let them have a little taste of what that's like. That's the lifestyle of love. It's the culture of this new humanity. It's the culture that we really want to build here at Renewal. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you don't turn away from us the first time that we refuse to open our hearts to someone. Thank you that you don't turn away from us over and over and over. Lord, open our hearts to you. Give us humility to come to you, to ask for your love one more time, to not shrink back, to not expect to hear you say no to us. Lord, open our hearts to receive from you so we would then live out this amazing community, this amazing kingdom uh, with each other that you've brought us into. In Jesus' name, amen.